Alright, and welcome to episode 10 of the Renegade EDC podcast. Thank you all for joining in. Tonight we've got a special episode. We are going to be talking about photography and uh, how photography really has integrated itself into the EDC community and how it is blooming from there. And once again, I am super excited to have a guest with me. This guest, you probably know him. You probably love his manly, amber-toned photos all over Instagram. Uh, Tonight with me is MB Wild. So, MB, thanks for uh, joining in. Uh, Let's take this time to uh, talk a little bit about uh, your background in EDC, how you got into it, and and what brought you to the podcast this evening. Well, hey, Chris. Uh, Glad to be here having a conversation with you. Um, you know, I guess for me, the CDC project is, it's really just a side project. So in my regular life and career, I have a pretty stressful career. I enjoy it very much. It's very high stakes. And I wanted to carve out this tiny little, you know, project on the side with which to create things. And, you know, as a photographer, almost all of my work is black and white. I don't do anything in color. And so I thought, well, why don't I do something in color? And I was thinking about what I should do. I've always been very, very interested in the EDC world. I remember my grandfather, um, you know, a knife passed down from him to me. And I was really struck one time when I held it, how much I felt like I could learn about him, even after he had passed, you know, through time. And, you know, just holding it, the wear patterns on it, you know, which which of the ones were easy to open. Uh, It was kind of a, it's like an old case knife, with a bunch of blades in it. And some opened right up, and some were rusted shut, and some I don't think had ever been used. And I just really loved that idea of connecting with something through time by studying the objects used, like like anthropology, but not after it was gone. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to dive into the EDC, and I'm going to try and to do some color work with it. And since it's quarantine, I think I started this in May. Since it's quarantine, I might as well do something. And... uh yeah, that's how I got here. Oh, yeah. Well, it seems like out of the guests uh, so far, we really have uh, to thank our EDC addictions uh, to the the men in our lives, fathers and grandfathers. Uh, myself, my grandfather was the, the main person that got me into the thought of carrying watches and a pocket knife and handkerchiefs and all of those things. Uh, so really nice to see that. Um, that coordination between different people in the EDC community and the, and the men uh, that really inspired us and built us into uh, the people that we are. So in, uh, in typical fashion, we are going to start out the episode uh, with a quote. So I'm going to go ahead and read the quote, and then we're going to get uh, MB's thoughts on it. And we'll talk a little bit about the quote to break it down. So this quote uh, comes from us from Withold Grombowicz, uh, this is, uh, he's a, a Polish writer and a playwright, and this is actually an excerpt that came from his diary. Uh, the quote says, average intelligence loves blinders, which facilitate an even trot, but a brisker and livelier intelligence desires uncertainty, risk, a play of more deceptive and elusive forces, where one can preserve flight, pride, joke, confession, rapture, play, and struggle. So, MB, because you are the guest, um, 
what what thoughts do you have on this uh, quote? What kind of what kind of thoughts does it evoke from you? Oh, man, well, first of all, it's a cool quote. Um, you know, two things jump to mind on that real quick. I, the first thing that hits me hearing you read it is that there's you know there's a little bit of a sense of adventure in there. This thing of once you once you make a decision to follow curiosity or depth. Um, to go deeper with something, you start being willing to take more and more risks and you realize the uncertainty of a lot of what you're going after. And, you know, to me, it reminds me of that idea uh, when I was rock climbing uh, of the sublime, right, which is beauty comes from something that is inherently dangerous. And, um, yeah, I mean, that hits me about it. Just this idea of, you know, you decide to go deep, you decide to follow your curiosity, you decide to undertake uncertainty and there is something in it something that's worth being there for and sure it's easy to play it safe enough but but why so Mm. so it jumps out to me oh yeah yeah and and my thoughts uh pretty well uh mirror that um the the quote really speaks to me as a as an entrepreneur or somebody that likes to to build something, uh, anybody that works with entrepreneurs or has had that entrepreneurial spirit where you have have built something from nothing, there is an inherent uncertainty about it. You know, it's very easy to go into uh, something where you receive a paycheck or a salary and have a guaranteed income that comes in that gives you safety, um, gives you that that nest egg that you know is always going to be there. Whereas being an entrepreneur, it's uncertainty, it's it's risk. Um, you have to be dealing with those elusive forces uh, all the time. And then there's a big difference between someone. You know, you would take the the average intelligence loves blinders, the beginning of that quote, um, and not saying that someone that's not an entrepreneur isn't as intelligent as an entrepreneur, but it says average intelligence loves blinders. And, you know, a lot of people that build their own businesses would say that getting a paycheck, receiving your your sustenance from, from a higher up, um, a manager or a, another business owner or something like that is basically you signing your will to them. You're putting on the blinders. You're ignoring all of the opportunity that's outside of that business. Uh, whereas someone that you know enjoys that livelier intelligence is more than willing to dive into the the risk and play with those deceptive and elusive forces to really build a better um, or more intricate life uh, for themselves. So pretty interesting to see uh, just the, the minor differences between the two takes on that uh, quote, but how much that, you know, you talking about advent, adventure, depth, and curiosity, and then the sublime, the beauty comes from the danger in something, how well that matches up with how I perceived the quote uh, as well. So... Um, Wonderful quote. Uh, I would recommend uh, anybody that uh, liked that quote or enjoyed it to go ahead and look uh, the man up. I will have his name in the uh, in the description of this episode so that you can take a look at him. Uh, so let's let's just break right into it. So let's talk about um, you as a as a photographer. What your photography background is, and then what parts of that photography really helped you or aided you in making these these phenomenal EDC photos that we see on your on your Instagram all the time. 
Man, okay, so I mean that is a it's a deeper question for me. Oh, it's, it's deep. Not, <laughs> yeah. It's not gonna be as easy as some people. So I fell in love with photography somewhere about the time that I was in high school. And I started traveling overseas quite a bit. Um, just I found different ways to take trips and get as deep as I could into the world. And, you know, the first time I think I was like a freshman in high school and I went to Africa and I came back and the, you know, all of the giraffes had their heads cut off. And I was kind of aware that, you know, I, I have this photograph and it, it kind of records what happened a little bit, but it, nothing about what it felt like. The essence of what I experienced was not there. And so I got, you know, curious and I dove in. And then when I went off to college for the first time, I also took um, into photography school. They had night photo programs at a pretty well-known art school in L.A. And I just decided to go. Um, and there, you know, I got to you know, shoot and shoot with models. That was kind of, you know, not exactly at the dead end of the film era, but it was getting there. I learned on a Leica system. And, you know, I learned there that I did have a deep, deep passion, but it was for documentary style photography, specifically that staged work didn't interest me. The idea of taking a model and telling her to hold her shoulder, her shoulder like this or having him, you know, twist and look over at me in a certain that it, it held nothing for me. I did not appreciate it. It was not my my style. And. You know, I got to study from these beautiful documentary photographers, I studied, uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson, um, you know, Japanese photographers like Daido Moriyama, some of the old-fashioned photographers like Gordon Parks. And these guys and these, these women that I studied, oh, man, so many, so many female photographers in there that were absolutely brilliant. And people that have come up even recently, like Vivian Meyer, there was an authenticity to their work. And so I would look at the, at the photographers who were shooting documentary style, uh, available light. You know, Cartier-Bresson talks about how all of photography is based in a reverence for the light. And I decided, you know, I could play with light kits. I had access to full studios. I've done, a, I've done studio work and advertising work. And, but, man, I, I love the challenge of trying to take available light and to make something happen with it. Uh, at the same time as I was doing that, I was working on a college degree, which was on international law and genocide law. And, um, you know, I didn't specialize in the World War II genocide era. I specialized in the modern genocides, which were Bosnia-Herzegovina, um, and it was Rwanda. And a huge part of that study was, when I was filling out my final thesis work, was I had to list how many sources I had. And... At the time, I think the number of war crimes photos uh, taken by photographers like James Natchtoy, um, you know, whose whole purpose in his photography is to document war crimes in a vivid way, and he captures the essence of something terrible. But the, the work that they did was so powerful, and when I had to fill out that thesis, I think I'd filled out that I had sorted through more than 500,000 photos of either war crimes or mass grave sites. And, you know, for me, it was heavy, but I realized that being able to see it instead of just read about it gave it a lot of meaning for me mm -hmm. and it allowed me to connect with it. And so from that point on, no matter what else I did in my regular career, which took a very different track, 
I've always taken professional gigs since then. So I do, you know, environmental portraiture. I do photo essays. I've shot in some conflict areas, no war zones, but areas that were in conflict um, overseas. I've done uh, protests in the United States. I love going in and shooting where there's very high tensions. Um, and then I also took on a lot of, you know, more higher end uh, wedding photography gigs. Because for me, I know a lot of people hate weddings. They shoot weddings because what I really want to do is shoot UFC or cars or whatever, but I have mm-hmm. to pay the bills and weddings do it. Uh, but for me, you know, just kind of wrap up this whole journey, I, I realized that there was no other place in the world where you could get that kind of emotion and access to that many people's raw, vulnerable, uninhibited feelings and emotions where you weren't you know, creeping on them. If you go to a park and you shoot somebody crying, you may get a great photograph, but as a human, you have intruded on them. Yeah. And so for me, it was a way to be invited in and then, you know, to take that art and to produce something that would pass down over time. And I take those wedding photos as a documentary photographer. I don't do any grip and grins. I don't do any staged photos. For me, what I say is, you know, one day this couple is going to be very old and the grandmother will have passed away and the mother will have passed away. And a great granddaughter, a granddaughter is going to look and say, what was grandma like when she was young? And I want the power of that to come through over time. Um, So when I shoot those photographs, I shoot them for the great granddaughter, not even for the couple. And that's what brought my work up to the current time. Wow. And that's a a really tremendous take on, on especially that type of photography, because as someone who has also shot weddings, I would be among that group of people that's just like, Oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to spend another 10 hour day here taking 10,000 pictures and I'm going to deliver 700 of them after, uh, I'm, I'm always the type of person where, you know, all the other photographer friends, like if I, if I second shot with somebody, uh, they might be six months before they, they give photos out. Like if I shoot a, a wedding on Friday night, I want the, the photos to be delivered Sunday night, um, I, I just can't sit there with that, that work. And it was always such a daunting task where it was just, I, here's <laughs> the, the bride shares her Pinterest board with you and she goes, okay, I want these 36 shots, period. I want these 36 shots. And you just have to feel so constrained um, and diminished as an artist because you're like, okay, well, I'm just following a checklist on a Pinterest board and trying to recreate uh, the context of the photos that that she wants, because the artistic expression is just kind of lost at this at this point. So yeah, yeah you know, that you say that, and I don't I don't play that game. So when if a bride will hire me, I will tell them that I, I don't shoot any of that. You may want to get a second shooter who can do the grip and grins and the Pinterest board. I go embedded into the wedding for the most part, and I don't do any of that stuff. I not none of the staging. You know, my job as a documentary shooter is simply to record what happens on that day. Yeah. And I mean, certainly to focus on, on good things, not bad, but oh, for sure. insert myself as little as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And seeing a few of, of, of the shots that you've, you've shared, you, you do a fantastic job at, at obtaining the context of the situation with a, with a photo, which is difficult in, in the traditional wedding photography when you're doing the candids. Um, because everybody focuses so much on those on those structured uh, shots. Yes. So, taking your 
your your documentary history and the um, the the pooling of emotions um, in all kinds of different contexts with the photography that you've done in the past. How did you take that and and transfer that over to the the EDC world? Because and I'll, this is a little bit long and in, in, in a question, uh, but it, it doesn't take a an expert to go through and reverse. Um, reverse the thought pattern in the in the photos that you take, but you have an uncanny knack to take an inanimate object object like a knife, um, a handkerchief, a uh, a pair of boots sitting next to a a Filson bag. And I know that as I'm talking through these people that are listening, they're they're probably thinking of the exact photos that I remember looking at, thinking these items like all oh, the boots in a Filson bag. You know, how does somebody make art out of that and really draw in the emotion. Um, but how did that documentary um, form of photography transpose to the EDC world for you? I mean, also a really, a really uh, deep question. I don't know how deep you want to get with the answer. I'll go topical. And <laughs> we, we've got all the time it. in the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so to me, there's kind of three things that converge at EDC that I was very deliberate about. The one is, you know, why EDC? Let's forget the photography for a moment. Why that is a subject? Why is that compelling? And yeah, I have my story about my grandfather's knife, which is, you know, completely authentic story. And, and honestly, some people might find it boring. It's literally why I did it. But why EDC as a whole? Not everybody has that story. And I see all of this. You know, you, you mentioned Taylor um, at some point when we've been talking in the Best Damn EDC. And I remember the lead on his YouTube channel for a while was why EDC. It was almost like he had to give a reason why that would be interesting. But I'm a little bit different. I, I think it's more interesting why we forgot about why it mattered. You know, it used to be to the vast majority of human history that your ability to be comfortable or to have success in the world came from how well you used the tools that you had access to and how well you made something with your own hands. And you didn't have to make everything. You could trade. But the quality of what we did with our hands was directly tied to the wealth that we could have in the world and to the lifestyle that we could live. And then somewhere, you know, about midway through the baby boomer years, it changed. And and baby boomers had a lot to do with this, but they changed the center of wealth and your comfort in the world, and they switched it into finance. And they switched it into now, it has tumbled into the digital economy, where we don't make things anymore. It's about how we trade money. It's about taking out HELOCs on your house and turning your house into a, an ATM machine that maybe <laughs> drives up the price of you know safe neighborhoods so much that your kids can't even afford to live in them anymore. Yeah. And there's this detachment that happens with the things that we make. And to me, that's why EDC has such a passionate resonance with people of all types of thinking and all backgrounds right now. I mean, just think of the chats that you and I are in together. There's people from every country in the world. There's doctors and surgeons sitting next to car mechanics. And, you know, we share common ground there. In fact, honestly, Social status almost never comes up, nor is it relevant. And yeah. so, you know, I'll you know let you comment on that one, but but just for EDC in general, I, I think we lost our way and got away from something that we knew. And the reason why there's such a following now is because something in us longs to have that back again. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely 
definitely agree that we have we have strayed away from uh, from the EDC mentality, and a, very few of us have. You know, our community is quite quite small, but uh, there are a lot of us that are getting back to that point, especially with the help of people like Peter McKinnon and Taylor Martin, uh, Jeremy Sires. You know, these these people that um, kind of have a stardom from from YouTube and are in varying stages of of life, entrepreneurship, and um, monetary class status, um, showing us that you know somebody that carries a carries a pocket knife isn't the the enemy of the state uh, anymore, where it, it did kind of feel like that for, for a long time. Uh, me being a kind of rural country boy, um, carrying a pocket knife was, it was always a necessity because you went from the farm to school to the farm again, and then you might be doing carpentry or heavy equipment work or something like that. So having tools on my person or in my truck readily accessible was always a very pertinent thing uh, for me. Uh, but none of my classmates, even though they lived in a rural area, had that that same thing. But we have seen that explosion recently um, going into that. <coughs> Excuse me. So... Yeah, I would add, too, that, you know, our tools got cheaper when that happened. You know, everybody has these crap screwdrivers that break. And everyone mm. walks around their house looking for a sharp edge to cut something and grabs a kitchen knife or you know some tool that is in no way fit to it that I think our great-grandparents would have laughed at us about. I mean, it would look like we just landed on Earth and had no idea how to navigate it. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, specializing in things like knives and other tools, could it become very materialistic? Sure. And for some people, it's there. And that's fine, by the way. Um, but I, I don't think that's the drive inside of us. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll also say you had asked how that turned into photography. I mean, for me, there's two things that motivate people to commit their energy to photography. One is that they do it because they're in love with the technology. And they're more technologists than they are photographers. They buy the latest camera gear. They always trade it in. They're the pixel peepers. You know, they're going on DP review and they're zooming in on the test sheets, trying to figure out how many microns of bend are in this 16 millimeter piece Mm -hmm. of glass versus this other one. And I think it's a a completely legitimate reason to be into photography. Actually, it's a lot of fun. And I think at some point we all have a technology wave in us. And technology is changing so fast that to be at the edge of that, practice today is worlds different than it was even three to five years ago. Oh, then there's the other path. Yeah. And the other path is, is that they're in love with the art of photography itself, the art of taking a 3d world and capturing this slice of it so that it has meaning. And that art there that motivated guys like tim hetherington who passed away as a war photographer in syria uh, i don't know maybe 10 years ago but he would go into war zones with cell phones early cell phones and a roll of flex and shoot and have his stuff run you know in time magazine um you know the pictures that were in life magazine to begin with the kind of photographers that i was studying you know they took those pictures on now what is considered arcane technology and yet they're their pictures are still so powerful that they will move us. They move through time mm. with this punch attached to them. And, you know, I was always into it for the photography. And that art has not changed hardly at all, regardless of the technology. 
And for me, when you mix that, when you mix not the technologist track, but the photographer's track with EDC, what you get is, is how do I create art? And that's the thing we can go super deep if you want to. I'm happy to tell people, you know, what I do and how I do it, how I teach it when I teach photography. But you know, that may not be of interest. But in the big picture is how can I take these objects and take them from a living 3D world that is moving forward in time and without overstaging them, without, for me, without including things that are false that I don't actually use, without spending all day long perfectly crafting all the light modifiers, because I don't do that. Um, and how can I help take portraits of these objects and try to capture a little bit of their soul and what it felt like to interact with them in a way that a hundred years from now, they might be more powerful and more interesting than they are even today. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I can definitely, like I said, you can see that in, in your photography when you, when you look at things, you, you look through your, your grid, uh, as the, the kids call it, uh, these days, and you can see the, the continuity, uh, between photos, but you can also see the realism, in the photos, you know, like I mentioned before with you having your, your work briefcase and your boots that looked well-worn and creased in all of the places that you would expect from, from years of wear and the, the sheen on the leather that showed that they were cared for. Um, you can see not only with the, the, the primary focal point of your, your photo, but the ancillary or the secondary items that you put in, um, in for context what kind of story that you're you're trying to produce and i think that in the edc community or if someone was listening to this podcast to try to uh, to better themselves as photographers which i think was one of our intentions with uh, with the subject uh, that we chose um, understanding how that image comes to together as a whole and you know you had mentioned the archaic technology of the predecessors that we had in in photography, whereas they're using the um, the standard calculator uh, of the day to take their photo, and then we've got a scientific calculator, and we still can't produce the emotion that they did sixty years ago. So, when you are choosing a photo um, to to highlight a, a particular knife, what kind of uh, or EDC item in general. Let's let's just make it more broad. Um, what kind of thought pattern do you go through uh, when deciding the the items that are going to go th with that that knife? Is it just what is laying around, or do you have a process uh, for choosing those items? Yeah, so that's a good question. For me, um, for me, everything I do, whether it's EDC photography or if it's documentary style. I am trying to sharpen the same kind of universal skill set. To me, it's a dojo for the type of photography that I value. So my favorite type of portraiture work to do is not posed portraiture, it's environmental portraiture. And it's taken largely with, with wide angle lenses. And you go into somebody's environment and you shoot them um, interacting with their environment because things resonate with us. Things change our behavior. We surround ourselves with objects, not even in a materialistic way, but we surround ourselves with objects and they give us a context. And so, you know, I would like, and it is think about who your grandfather was. And I know a little bit about your grandfather because you've told me, 
but you know anybody can think about who their grandfather was or their grandmother um you know there's nothing here that, that's gendered in any way um and think about how awkward if you've ever seen their photos are of them in like an olin mills and you know the, they're like they're sort of awkwardly posed with their fingers interlaced on somebody's shoulder and for the most part some people would say oh well my grandmother came through on that but when it comes to grandfather most people even clients i talk with say that was not him his soul yes. was absent from this and nobody keeps those photos after they die unless it's literally the only one that exists mm -hmm. what environmental portraiture does is saying you know imagine if a documentary photographer had gone in and shot and just kind of hung out with you and wasn't super awkward about it but shot you and your grandfather you know, digging out, you know, a day or two of you guys on the project where you dig out and you make the lake and you, you reform the property and the interactions that you had and his mannerisms and his gestures begin to come through. And that is environmental portraiture. That is what I am interested in. And for EDC, for me, I want to grab that environmental portraiture for the objects that I have. Um, Cartier-Bresson used to say that the art of photography is... Um, you know, a connection of the head, the eye, and the heart, and putting them on the same axis. And then when, when some things interact, either two people or people and an object, that sparks fly out, so to speak. And the job of a photographer is through great geometry and through lots of, of careful pieces of, you know, master composition to capture those sparks that are flying off. Mm. And so... What I do is I start with only objects that I really use, only objects that I care about. I spend a lot of time with things trying to figure out what the soul of this object is as much as possible. And that can change over time. And, and sometimes I'm just working with a theory. You know, I'll shoot something. I'll say, I think this is the spirit of this thing. And I'll try to shoot it. And maybe two or three weeks later, I start to see a different perspective on it. Um, for that reason, you know, I, I, you know, you know this um, but I do a lot of trading and buying and, and trading off, um, you know, for different knives especially, and I keep them moving. And, you know, if I bring them in, no matter how beautiful they are, if I'm not going to use them, if I'm not connected to the soul of that piece, if it's not something I would endorse or I would tell somebody to go pick up, I don't even photograph it. Mm -hmm. um, I will not let people send me things. You know, they'll say, hey, can I send you this? And I say, yeah, look, if you send it to me and I don't like it or I don't appreciate it, I will send it back. I promise. Um, but I, I'm not. I'm never going to accept any kind of a of a trade or a, of a price to feature anything. Not that my page is that big, but I'm just not interested in that type of manipulation. And so I will take the real, you know, food I'm eating, the real things that are sitting on my desk. If I've used it in the last week, if I've noticed it, if I've appreciated it, if it's a part of my world, and I think that I can bring those elements together, and there's some sparks there that can fly off. That's what I'm hunting for. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and all fantastic points. Um, you know, even going into into my own photography, a lot of those same, same notes uh, come out. And people have probably noticed, um, though surprisingly I haven't gotten any messages. Uh, in, nobody's dropped into my DMs to, uh, to tell me about how I've kind of stolen your, your trademark coloring uh, on my page. But um, I've gone into this kind of life-centering era. Um, I'm, I'm still a young guy, but 
I wouldn't call it a midlife crisis, but definitely a time of, of centering where I'm trying to balance my, my work, my creativity and my, uh, my family time having a, a two-year-old son. And like, you know, I've gone through my office and I've, I've taken all of the, the doctor, doctor's office lighting and converted it to tungsten. Um, I've taken all of the, the new world materials off of my desk and replaced them with, with leather and, and brass. So when I'm looking through, you know, when I'm thinking about what I want to, to take a photo of what I want to, to post to my, my Instagram feed or my Facebook or my website, whatever it may be, I'm looking for, like you said, that item that I've connected with recently. So the knife that I'm carrying today next to the brass lighter that I had in my pocket that I used to singe the um, singe the thread on whatever leather prototype I I made that day, sitting next to the the bottle of whiskey that I'm sipping and enjoying as I'm contemplating the emotion that I want to portray in in that photo. So it, it is partly those those items that are are closest to me, uh, but it's also the the truth or the I'm not trying to portray a false narrative with my photos by showing an item that I don't care about with other items that I don't care about um, in an area that I don't care about. All of it has meaning to me. The, the secondary items, the tertiary items, the primary item, and the environment all has mind-centering, um, psyche-centering possibilities so that when I go back and look at that photo... Um, and to bring your grid back in it, I'm sitting here looking at it on, on my computer screen. Um, and your, your second to last photo, uh, you have my old Sabenza in it. Uh, the, the Sabenza that I sent to Ray and Mm -hmm. I poured a lot of thought into what I wanted him to do, uh, with that Sabenza thinking that it was going to be something that I kept for quite some time. And I had an, an emotional connection to it. And then I I see it on your page after I've I've traded it to you and you've got it in a in a in a passport uh, leather um, portfolio with a note card with a bunch of notes written on it and even though that's not my picture I can connect with every single item that is in that that photo the the heritage quality pin uh, which. I can't tell if it's copper or or brass, but both I approve of. Uh, a notepad, um, which I was joking with somebody about earlier, that I have more notepads sitting in my office than I have knives, and that's saying something because I've got a lot of knives. Uh, but y- you've got the the leather folio. You've got a a brass coin from Mendoza that is absolutely gorgeous and has a story of its own. Every item there speaks to some corner of my brain. Um, and that's, that's the whole point of the, the EDC photography is to take that knife that somebody may not have. I do have a emotional uh, connection to with, but somebody may not have an emotional connection with that knife, but they can see all of the cues in your photo. That's well lit through what looks like a, a window that's nearby possibly. Um, and it just instills that, that emotion, that feeling, like you can see the outline of where that coin 
sits in the leather. You can see the contours of where it's been there for a little while. You can see the the indents in the notepad uh, where it's you might have had another note on top of it and had been writing in it for a long period of time. Uh, such a a fantastic way to show that thousand words that a photo is always meant to portray. And definitely yeah, something that we all we, we all strive for. <clears throat> so let, let's let move on a, a little bit into what's what are the uh what are the the basics of, of a good photo if we're trying to to help other people out and i would not classify myself as as a professional photographer in any way shape or form i would say that the majority of the photos that are on on my page are are more luck than actually understanding the the laws and rules uh, of photography uh, but if you were to talk about just the generalized basics of of photography for somebody in the EDC community, what would be some general rules and and guidelines that you would would want to express for them to increase the the quality um, or the emotion of their photos? I mean, so for me, I take an approach that is known in some circles as master composition, which simply says that. You know, part of what you're doing is you're, you are not influencing the subject as much as a documentary photographer. Um, you know, you could take the wedding example. Between me and the bride and groom, we have politeness between us. And maybe there's even some affection there because we've gotten to know them over time. But between a groom and a bride, there is passion. There is love. There is deep love. There is I will die for you and I hope I am with you on your deathbed. And, and no matter how good your photographer is, that just is never going to be there. Those sparks do not come. So what you do is you let them interact. And then you take the approach of master composition and you freeze that. And master composition says that there is, there are qualities that belong to incredible art, the kind of art that is timeless and passes down and hangs in museums that are not just fashion, you know, passing fancies, but are style, are stylistic, and they they tend to not change all that often. You can go back hundreds of years and find those qualities, thousands of years in some cases. And that's what you're doing, is you're capturing these fleeting moments with that level of creative rigor. And, you know, there's four parts to it um, for me. Let's see if I can remember them all, but the the first part to that is always light. Every great photograph has great light, period. And there is a reverence for the light and a love for the light that you have to teach yourself to see. When I walk into a room as a photographer shooting an event, even, even a protest, I look at where the light is and how that light reads. And I'm going to go shoot whatever's going to happen that is authentic no matter where the light is. But I also know in my brain where the incredible light is. And then I'm going to wait until something interesting happens in that space. So if I, let's say I go to a, a protest like the Occupy protest and people are, are throwing back the tear gas canisters and I'm there. Yeah, I'm going to shoot the people in the protest and the police staring down 
the protesters and, and all of that, because to me, that's very important to see what happens in the world. And I'm going to get it, even if it's crap. But I also know that there's this warm puddle of light. And if I see a protester running to grab a canister right in that puddle of light, I'm going to shoot it as well, because then that, that photograph has the ability to take on greater meaning. And it, it's not, you know, Susan Sontag, when I was in photo school, we had to read through her criticisms. And she had a lot of criticisms of photography, that it creates a romanticism that doesn't belong in reality. And mm. I disagree completely. I, I think that the more powerful a photograph is, the longer we will spend studying it and thinking about what it means, and the more likely we are to go research something and to, to dig into what actually happened in the history of it, that if we don't make it vivid, that it passes and we don't pay attention. And so light is the number one thing that determines whether that will happen. And yes, a powerful human gesture or expression, and that's kind of the second thing is gesture and expression. Um, those things are also very powerful, but gesture and expression that occur in the right lighting move forward in time forever. And, you know, the last thing I'll say about light is that, you know, we are taking a 3D world and we're compressing it into 2D and nothing that you see in an image actually has any depth to it. We flatten mm. it. And by flattening it, we take away a meaningful part of what made it vivid to us. And by using light to add volume, to wrap around something, to show the depth of it, that is how we add volume back in. And if you don't do it right or if you use it poorly, and I use very little artificial light in my images. In fact, I have a hue bulb or two and a couple lamps around my shooting areas. And that's about the only added light I will ever use. I never use flash. I never use softbox. Mm -hmm. Um I will I will read the available light and use that. Um, you know, number two is a lot faster. It's just gesture and expression. What makes us human is the gestures and the expressions that we have. And when a mother looks at a daughter, the sparks that fly off look like gestures and expressions. The she starts crying and she throws her arms up, and all of a sudden she's not sucking in her stomach and pushing in her cheeks anymore. She is on the edge of holding in her own tears. And those are the things that really matter. And so I find that objects, whiskey bottles and knives, they all have their own gestures. They all have their own expressions. They all have their own ways that they're used. Right. Um, you know, yeah, go, yeah, go. Yeah. And gosh, um, when, when you're talking about light and the, and the protesters um, and, and finding that, that perfect shot amongst the, the plethora of, of shots that, that you could um, that you could take uh, that actually just reminded me of one of the one of the first photos uh, that I remember seeing um, that got me thinking about photography uh, and I, I don't remember what the photo was called but I remember that it was in it was in National Geographic and it was um, it was a, a young girl uh, wearing uh, very heavy clothing, and it was just the a photo that highlighted the blue green color of of her eyes. Um, oh, it was the single eye picture. Yes, and yeah. I even I know that photographer's name is escaping me, but yeah, uh, Steve. Uh, it'll come to me. But yeah, really famous photograph. Yeah, yeah, and I remember seeing that my my grandmother had purchased a subscription to National Geographic uh, for me, so I think like four times a year. Uh, I got these like 200 page 
books that talked about everything that was going on. And they, they were amazing as a young, uh, a young boy being raised by them to not only get to see the, the world in person, uh, because I did get to travel, uh, most of the world with my grandparents because they were quite, um, quite well off, uh, because of the entrepreneurial spirit that my grandfather had. But I could remember I was in the general area that that photo was taken at one point in time in my life and had zero emotion tied to that area. But then I'm looking in this National Geographic book of a photo of a girl where I would have seen hundreds of people in that same context and just the perfect light that they caught in that image. There's no context about it uh, at all. I, I actually just pulled up the the image. She's just wearing tattered um, red clothing with a with a hood and a green door in the background. Uh, and the, Steve McCurry, is that right? Um, it does. He was say. one of my big influences as well. If it is, he was a Magnum photographer. Uh, he has the Afghan girl picture. And yes. I even think, by the way, I think he reshot that image with that woman, like twenty years later, holding a cover he of did. that National Geo. Yes, and showed yep. the wear that living in a war zone actually puts on. Yeah, and you know the the photo was just so perfect, and that that really tied to me where I, as a person, was in an, an area just like that, maybe even in that same kind of generalized area, and had zero emotion with what was going on. But that one photo in National Geographic with the perfect light, with a great background, not showing anything that happened, like it doesn't show any hardship or anything, but you could read everything in in her eyes and the way that the light bounced off of, of, of everything. That was when photography went from, I don't want to take photos with the family. You know, the grandmother that <laughs> takes the thousand photos at, at every family gathering. It took me from being that angsty teenager that was like, I don't care about photos. Like, I don't understand why you're taking them. I don't want to be in them to take as many photos as you want. Tell me how you took them. Get me a, uh, a camera I want to figure this out. I want to do it. And it was just the light in that one photo that, that changed that mental, that mental process, that thought pattern. That's so powerful, Chris. I agree with you. I had almost the same experience with that same photograph. And Steve McCurry, if you look him up, does things. He captures the soul of places and the soul of people in a way that I hope one day I can do in my career. And he oh, does it through yeah. color. His color work is incredible. Yeah, it it's that that picture is the only one that I know um, by him, but it it alone has enough feeling behind it to just blow everything that I've ever done out of the water. Uh, so let let's continue on with the uh, with those with those four rules uh, before we get off on a on a tangent. Yeah, so so two more. You have light, you have gesture and expression. Then you have geometry and this is where you start to get a little technical and it requires some learning and some practice i think some people have a natural sense of it but um it carries into kind of the fourth rule they're related and it, it's called gestalt psychology there there was a whole branch of psychology started by three guys of wertheimer hofka and kohler i believe and they were Gestalt psychologists. And what, what Gestalt psychology said is that we do not perceive the world in all of these little pieces. We analyze it that way later. 
but we actually perceive it as a continuous, complicated whole. So if I draw a, a circle with a line coming down the bottom and it connects to three other lines that are you know, parallel and then two circles and then two other lines that make a 45 degree angle, you don't actually perceive parallel line, circle, circle, angle, and then go, what is that? Oh, what you say is, oh, it's a stick figure on a bike. Mm-hmm. Or you look up at a cloud and you go, oh, yeah, no, that, that's a puppy dog. Oh, hey, look, that's, a, that's the Nuveral isotope. Yeah. I see it in the cloud. Yeah. And we see that because our brain ha- has perceptual organization. And you could look at it like a trick of the mind. It's the reason why magicians exist, because they can make you think something is happening that isn't. And then they can make something happen that you don't perceive. It can be seen in our biases, right? Like the Kahneman and Tversky's work on um, on social economics. And what happens is, is based on the same kind of brain biases that we have, that we have behavioral triggers. But they think that our perceptions and our behaviors and how we read things are linked. And what that means is, is that remember, we're taking this rich 3D world and we're compressing it into something flat that actually has no volume to it. Mm. And in act one, we add light, you know, and so the first bass notes of the choir come in. And now this thing has volume. But what are we shooting, right? You know, you can perfectly light an empty table and actually humans won't even think, oh, look, an empty table. They'll think what's missing from the table. Because we're already completing the story. And then I put something interesting in there, something with its own gesture or expression or a soul. You talk about the Afghani girl from, from Steve McCurry. There's a soul that comes through that photograph that it will reach out and grab you. What is it now, 40 years later? And it'll grab you by the neck. Yeah. And now we have it there. Well, now, now if we're not careful, and let's, use, let's use that Steve McCurry photograph um, very deliberately here, if you're not careful, you will clutter out that soul and you'll never see it. And that's where we get to gestalt psychology and geometry. And it says that the eye is naturally going to jump into a photograph and do something. We're going to look for meaning for that photograph. Start, and, and at least for the Western listeners here, if somebody is from a primarily Asian country, they may read from slightly different angles. But for the most part, we are trained to read uh, Top to bottom, left to right. And so our eye normally comes in at the top left of a photo. And then we go looking for the subject. And I think of it like, like, a, um, like a pinball coming in. And imagine if you had a pinball machine that was just loaded so hard with bumpers that a thing couldn't even move through it and it's just going to bounce out immediately. And that's what most people do when they clutter their photographs is they put so many things into it that are disorganized that our brain looks for that perceptual hole, not finding it. We instantly scroll on and it is ruthless. I mean, if you're in a museum, you at least have to physically walk. You have to use a calorie or two to move on to the next painting. Mm -hmm. But with something like Instagram, it's a flick of your thumb. In fact, it's mindless. We don't even notice. We, We could go through a thousand photographs and not burn a calorie. That's a whole different problem. So it's so easy to look at a photo, not find any meaning, and move on. What Gestalt psychology says is that we can actually guide that eye a little bit through the geometry that we put into it. So rule number one is that whatever is the subject needs to have the best light. And generally speaking, is at the highest point of contrast in a photograph because contrast is one of those things that tricks our eye. We jump to it. 
Um, when things are not contrasty, humans, we actually have a bias against it. We call it camouflage. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, it's like bush, 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 tiger, bush, bush, bush. But we just see bush all the way through, and that's why we get eaten. Yeah. Um, and so the contrast allows us to stop on something. But now that pinball is going to come in at a thousand miles an hour. The eye is how do we channel it to the subject? And mm -hmm. that's geometry. So there are some rules to how this works. You know, diagonal lines are very powerful and they take our eye much more than than upright lines. Patterns are very powerful. So, yeah, one diagonal might be the most powerful, but three or four echoing, we call them echoes, right? Yes. So if they're all supporting each other and resonating, three or four echoing upright lines might capture our attention very quickly. We want to see in like Steve McCurry's photo, how do you use the white space? The white space, that green door around her actually created very little chaos. And then you have green, red, dark hair, and then her face and her eye, which is the best lit thing in the photograph, which if you look, makes this powerful oval. Um, one of the tricks they teach you when they're teaching you how to read geometry in a photograph is to look at a photograph, and I teach this in my photo classes, look at a photograph and squint your eyes to where you can't really see any of the detail. You can only see the shapes. I do this with black and white photography. Switch your phone to black and white when you walk through a museum sometime and hold up, if you're allowed to use your phone in the exhibit, hold it up to the master painters. And all you're gonna see is the black, white, and the gray, and you will see profound geometry that you miss with the complexity of color that mm -hmm. they put in. So you, you stare at it, and yeah, in the girl in the Afghan, um, uh, the Afghan girl, you're going to look at it, and you see this bright face, this oval, this beautiful brown face, and these eyes that look through time at you. And then you see this red, almost an arabesque, right, like an S-curve around her face, and then all of this white space that's the green, and you, your eye knows exactly where to go. And so what you're doing is, when you understand Gestalt psychology, you understand that we perceive things as a whole, and that some things we perceive, um, you know, they balance. And you can get very, very technical with this, by the way. You know, if I have a very small, dark object in the frame, my eye looks for a balance to it. It looks at it like a bowling ball almost. And if you imagine a fulcrum under it for a moment, what would you expect to see that could lift that bowling ball up? Well, usually a big, large white ball. And so if there's something very tiny and dark in the corner of a frame, you need to balance it with something larger and light if you want the eye to jump to it. If you put mm -hmm. things too close together, we assume that they are related. So I can take a baby and I can take a pocket knife, and the pocket knife is 10 feet behind the baby. But I, may, I line them up in the frame to where it's right next to its head, and people go, oh, my God, you monster. How could you shoot that picture? What are you trying <laughs> yeah. to imply? Yeah. And you weren't implying anything. Our brains just related them. So to wrap that up, you know, you have this gestalt psychology and then you have geometry in the image. How you take the shapes and the lines and are they serving and drawing attention to and framing the subject? And when you squint your eyes and you look at the contrast of light and dark areas, you look at the shapes, you look at the sense of motion, is everything in that frame and, and I don't mean this to a perfectionistic pull out of micrometer and don't get sleep at night if mm -hmm. you miss it, but in, in the gist sense, um, is everything in that frame serving the subject, the soul that you're trying to tell the story about? And yeah. that is the art of photography, not, not the technology side. You know, you, this doesn't matter if you're shooting on a phone or with a good camera. 
But that is the dojo practice that I am doing all the time. I start with light. Then I look at gesture expression. For me, soul. Where's the soul? And then I use the, the gestalt psychology and the geometry to see how much I can make that story resonate as it comes out of the photograph. Yeah. Yeah, and building on uh, you talking about geometry. geometry. Uh, so you, you keep having these like little... Um, Mad Lib words that that pop up uh, as you're going through your conversation, and it just resonates um, certain things with me. So I am not a trained photographer, like I mentioned at the beginning. Um, most of the things that I do are are, are blind luck. Um, I, I just happen to get the light in the right places, and much like yourself, uh, I do have uh, two small aperture lights um like the they're like the credit card lights they're only about three by five just tiny little accent lights but the majority of the the light that i use in my photos comes from a brass piano lamp with a uh, a tungsten edison bulb in it like the majority of my light comes from that simple table lamp but one thing that i've been really trying to work on on with my photos is that that gm geometry aspect and two laws if you will or rules in in photography that i have really gravitated to um include the the pie grid which would be your rule of thirds your your photo is broken up into either three um vertical or horizontal thirds and you place your items uh, into those to to draw attention and you use of course leading lines and angles and and light rays to to draw to your subject but my my favorite one to use, uh, and I find this one the hardest to implement. But when I do, um, it it really really makes a a photo pop. Uh, and I've got maybe three photos in in my entire Instagram grid that I feel um, really emphasize this. And I actually just got them in print form uh, in. Uh, but it's called the golden ratio. Uh, and the the easier way uh, for people to think about it would be the Fibonacci sequence. Um, the the one in one is two, and the two in one is three, and you have these these exponentially growing numbers where it and its predecessor go into it. And we think about this happens in the Fibonacci sequence happens in in our DNA. It happens in in nature when you're seeing a a white cap, a wave crest over the spiral that goes through when you're talking about the the mollusk or the um uh the the shellfish that has the the conch where they make all of these air chambers that follow the fibonacci sequence that that golden ratio rule emphasizes such a emotional drawing of the eye so if you have that inverted spiral you talked about coming in from the left and then that spiral rotates you across the bottom and ultimately brings you into the the item that you're wanting to bring emphasis to and if you lead your items across that golden spiral and into the center it it just resounds so much more even though you're not doing anything but just following a a line that impacts our psychology. It, it impacts us at a DNA level where <clears throat> our primitive, our primate senses kind of draw us into the photo and lead us into that, that emotion. So that, that geometry plays such a finite or infinite, not finite, infinite role in, in the emotion of a photo. 
Yes, and Chris, you know, one resource for a listener who wanted to dive more into that, and golden ratio can be actually a little controversial. Um, I think it's it's absolutely brilliant, and you know, I think that the research does support it. I, I don't think it's you know some alien secret to how the world works. Not that you were claiming that. Some people have gone that far, but I do think there's some white papers that have come out of Stanford that I really like. I was just reading in the last few weeks actually that talk about how natural and natural occurring patterns and textures tend to create, you know, more calmness in humans and more interest than, you know, the harsh grid lines and the human lines of the city. And I, I do, I think that's exactly what it is. And if your readers wanted to dive more into that and learn, there was a, a gentleman I got to study with briefly a number of years ago. His name was Myron Barnstone. And he has passed now, but he actually has some courses online and I got to speak with him a couple of times and do some one-on-ones. But he teaches that actually the rule of thirds in the grid is is okay. It's way better than nothing. And it, it's an approximation. But if you can teach yourself to see the golden ratio, for example, and you can understand why it behaves the way it doesn't, and you can teach yourself to read diagonals and teach yourself to read some of these these gestalt principles, radiating lines and and it's really only about eight or nine different factors that you just look for and repeat over and over. And he teaches it as an art teacher. He teaches it in terms of sketching, but it applies directly to photographers. Uh, Myron Barnstone, and he still has some courses and YouTube videos that you can see online. And at least for me, he was maybe you know the most powerful instructor I got to study under. And he would he would agree with you completely. He would say, you know you start with a rule of thirds and all of a sudden your photography gets a lot better. But mm-hmm. then you start paying attention to things like, um, you know, like the golden ratio and occasionally you start to see really special things happen. And how can you help the occurrence of special things happen more deliberately instead of just accidentally? And yeah. I, I honestly believe that's about as far as you have to go in the study to get a lot of value. You, know, you don't have to start wearing an ascot and a beret and um, <laughs> you know, drinking whiskey out of a wine glass. And you, know, you don't have to do that. You can just kind of learn the tricks and then play with them. Well, let's, let's just say if you're, if you're not drinking whiskey from a, a fluted glass, you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my heart hurts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, so uh, so what are I've kind of exhausted the 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 talking points that I wanted to to go through. Um, what kind of of talking points would would you like to delve into at this point? You know, there's only one more thing that I would want to add. I mean, we could keep talking about this stuff for a long time and and take a lot of value from it. I spend as much time as I can listening and learning from other great people who do work and, and I, you know, try to pass on what I can. But the, the topic I would love to even hear your perspective on um, is to dive into how the community looks at EDC photography and specifically, you know, how people, you know, support each other, how they get better as a group. And, and I'll tell you the thing I'd love your comment on. I mean, for me, I don't, this is a side project. You know, this is play. I'm here to connect with designers and knife makers 
and to you know use it as a dojo for my own photography work and then to try to meet an interesting tribe of people who are following their own curiosity and to get that outlet that's why i'm here and so for me i'm giving away everything i can somebody you know oftentimes we'll spend a lot of time with people if they ask for help on their photography or will you take a look at this um i absolutely do that and but i think there's an interesting dynamic in the edc world where you know, some makers or some of the bigger personalities, and, and, and I don't want to talk about anyone in specifically, but there's almost a competitiveness to it. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're not sharing their ideas. Sometimes they'll even like open up alternate accounts and start throwing shade at people. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they get mad. Hey, you copied my idea. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, for me, I feel like we're all just here playing. I, I'm curious how you perceive that. Cause for me, I'm so laid back about it. You know, my yeah. thing is there's no competition here. We're all learning together. We're all, you know, trying to do this fun little project, but you know, it, it does seem like there's a little bit of an artistic underbelly. And I'm, I'm wondering if you notice it and how you deal with it and what you think. Oh about goodness. Yes. Uh, yes, I do notice it. And it, it was kind of misleading me saying that I didn't have any other talking points cause I actually have two, um, that were a little bit different subjects than what we were going on, but your your point plays right into uh, the first one, which is the is the perception or the difference between content theft and paying homage to somebody, and we we've seen it recently in the in the EDC community with people like Peter McKinnon. Um, Peter McKinnon is is a, a fantastic. Um, person overall with his what he's done with photography what he's done with building his youtube and also what he's done with with edc and and prior to starting recording uh you know we were talking like you mentioned about uh like taylor martin and jeremy sires and and peter mckinnon and what they are doing for for edc where they're bringing the the techies and the photographers into a realm of people that had no understanding of the laws of photography, no understanding of how to use a camera or, or anything like that. And because of their popularity, we've seen an exponential growth in what I would consider in, in most cases, nine out of 10 cases to be um, paying homage to, to people that, that we look up to. We especially see it in the pirate community, you know, where you, you have a exponential amount of people that are now taking pictures with a with a Chemex. They've got pictures of their knives and their coins on the beach. And the the other one that comes to mind the most is, you know, PM Peter has a a look on his on his Instagram page. You know, dark, moody, contrasty, a uh, little bit sharp uh, images. And then all of a sudden, one day he's got a picture of his. Um, I think V2 or V3 coin, and it is in snow. So you've got this blanket of white, these ice crystals, the independent snowflakes, and then you have his iconic brass coin behind it. And I remember going through my Discover feed, and I, I saw his photo come up because I have notifications on the stuff that he, he posts. Um, so he posted it. I saw it. I was like, man, that is, that is a, a fantastic shot. Breaks from his normal but fantastic shot and then all of a sudden i went to the instagram feed and i saw another 12 photos with all kinds of different coins from makers from you know just general people in the community and as i clicked on them 
I could see the makers that were trying to ride the coattails of a successful person. And then I could click on other ones and immediately see that they were somebody that looked up to Peter McKinnon, what he did, how he was doing it, and were, were just looking to show him, hey, I'm watching what you're doing. You're making a difference in my life, and I want to pay homage to you uh, for that. And, and we really see such a classification of both spectrums. And it's to me, it's pretty obvious to see the difference between the two when you look at it, homage versus content theft. Um, but it, it's really amazing to me how many people that are paying homage get attacked as a poser or somebody that's just copying to copy and how many people that are selling products and copying it just seem to skate on by like, you know, they're selling a product. So naturally they, they would do this. Uh, and that's kind of, kind of my introductory thoughts, um, into that. Um, so we could, we can kind of go into what yours are. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think that's a great way to look at it. Um, you know, for me, I wasn't even thinking up at the highest level. And so I'm kind of glad that you brought it up. I mean, to me, there's a big difference between people who are doing this as a side project and they're practicing their skill set and they're trying to connect with an interesting tribe and the people who are making a living at it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think when you get into like Taylor and Peter and some of the others, you know, you, you deal with a very different thing for sure. And there's a different set of pressures there. Yeah. You know, I, I'm a fan of Peter McKinnon and the stuff he does, but not because for the same reasons other people are. I did not know who he was when I came into this world. I had no idea actually how popular he was. Um, I just caught some photographs and they looked good. They looked like, like things that I would shoot and yeah. maybe even a little bit more clever, just a slightly different creative energy behind them. And I appreciate it. Same thing with Taylor. You know, I had no idea who the stars were, nor did I care. I mean, to me, this was just, you know, without revealing too much, I, I, I have worked with and around celebrities in Los Angeles um, on numerous, numerous occasions before and just in my regular work. And so for me, this is just a tiny little side project. And, mm. um, but I, that was a little bit on me because what I didn't realize is the same human pressures that are everywhere are here. And is isn't that small. This is a, a microcosm of the larger world. And mm -hmm. I think that the reason that I am very proud of the symbols that Peter McKinnon is creating um, is not because I want to be Peter McKinnon. In fact, he shoots a style that I will never shoot in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, it's because he's vulnerable. I mean, if you catch some of his YouTube videos, and I've seen a number of them, he puts himself out there. He put When he is inspired, he puts it out there. When he is burnt out, he puts it out there. When he thinks that he's done something well, he puts it out there. When he thinks he's made a mistake, he puts it out there. Oh, and, yeah. you know, even, you know, some of the controversies, you know, I, I forget what it was, whatever the, the Instagram drama was from a week or two ago. But, you know, he, he made a comment that somebody took as negative. I didn't, I didn't look at it. I didn't know if it was or it wasn't. But to me, well, yeah, of course, right? I mean, he's a, he's a creator. He's doing this for a living. That comes with a whole bunch of pressures. Once you reach a certain threshold of followers in any field, um, you know, the people I've worked with that, that have multi-millions of followers in, in different spheres, not in the EDC world, um, you know, 
everybody wants a part of that. Mm-hmm. And they want something for free. And, and it, it can make you very cynical about what people want when you interact with them. Yeah. And I imagine Taylor's going through that. He's gone through enough growth that my guess is, is that he, you know, all of a sudden all of his jokes are hysterical mm-hmm. and you know, everything he says is just so enlightened, you know, because everybody's laughing at his jokes and he's so wonderful and you start distrusting the people around you a little bit, you know, what's going on here. And, and so I think when you're making a living and you have a certain size following, you're more sensitive to things like theft, even if you're putting yourself out there as helping other people learn. I think there's a different pressure. Yeah. And when you come back down to the regular world where folks like you and I live, I think it's different. I think we're all practicing. I think you'd be hard pressed to prove any photograph ever that you could ever take as original because <laughs> somebody is always using those same principles of photography that haven't changed in the last few hundred years. And, yes. and unless you're really taking hours to Photoshop something. Um, and if you put it out there as, hey, look, it's, here's something I'm trying to do. I have no problem with that. If you copy someone's work directly and you go, you know, look at this great work I did, buy my how to do incredible work, uh, you know, class set for $99, that's when yes. I think that person should be drawn and quartered. Yes. So that's how I see it. Yep. Yeah, and that plays plays exactly into um, into what I was, was saying as well. Like you, you have the people that are trying to make money off of their coin using the talent of Peter McKinnon as a – a photographer. Uh, and then you have, uh, I can think of a, a couple of guys that I won't name, um, that we have in a couple of other groups where, uh, Peter has posted something. Um, I think on the one hand it was the, he did the water drop video where he, he had a fish tank. He set up his light. He dropped something into it, a product into the, into the fish tank. And he, he took a photo of it. And one of the, the guys in the group, watched that video uh, and then started learning how to do that type of photography. Uh, and then after he learned it, he has used it quite a few times because he's proud of the fact that he learned that skill or that trade. And when you look at, again, someone like Peter McKinnon, who I've, I've followed him since 2016, 2017. Like, I think I was one of oh, wow. the first... First 40,000, I think he had less than forty or 50,000 followers when I first started following. So I've kind of followed him through, you know, just being that standard average Joe to being the, the 5 million plus follower person that he is today with his photos on Canadian currency and all of, all of that. But he built his empire on two-minute Tuesdays, on how-to videos on this is how I made this cut where I show myself in one frame of a video, but it's two me's. You know, he built his brand on teaching us how to do things with video and photography. So attacking someone because they, they took a picture of a Chemex because they're trying to learn something from someone that made a video on Okay, if you want to take a cool po- coffee picture, this is how you do it. That's a recreation and a homage to a person that's putting themselves out there, like you said, being real and teaching. And there's there's an immense difference uh, from that. And there've there've been multiple times, and I know that we've both had conversations uh, in in various Instagram chat groups that we're part of, where this has has come up. You know, again, not trying yeah, to throw come up weekly. 
<laughs> it comes up. Worried about when can it I comes up when am I constantly. Um, when I think it was very early on when we uh, when we got into one of the the bigger chat groups, where and again not throwing shade at the at the podcaster, but we had a pretty tremendous riff that started to grow in the EDC pirate community because the person um, directly attacked anybody that took a photo of a knife with anything coffee related because it was just directly copying Peter McKinnon. And I looked at it like, you know what? How dare you do something because you're copying every other person that's ever made a podcast about something that they're interested in. Like, yes. yeah, it, it's hard to make an original podcast. Yeah, you have your own thoughts, but there are literally, if I wanted to go and find a general EDC um, podcast, and mind you, it's a small niche group that, of EDC guys that take photos, I can think of five off the top of my head that I've at least listened to one episode of that have talked about all the same things that I have in my 10 episodes. I'm not intentionally copying any of them, but someone could definitely come out and tell me that I am and attack me for that. Like you said, with the world of the internet, there is almost nothing that we can do that has originality. I've recently started doing leathercraft. So I have a I have a sketch pad and I've got drafting equipment and I thought I want to make a coin slip and I want to make it all my own. So I sat down, I drew out uh, a design that I thought worked for me that other people might enjoy, that other people might buy. And I thought, okay, I've got it. I'll, I'll cut this out of leather. I'll, I'll make it in a couple of days. Then I decided, you know what? I'm going to look up the hashtag coin slip on Instagram. It took me eight minutes of paging through that hashtag to find someone that had made that exact same coin slip. Oh, man. I've never followed that person. I've never seen that coin slip. I've never seen a coin slip that was shaped in a half octagon, half diamond um, perspective. But sure as hell, there it was. And it took me eight minutes to find somebody that if I would have produced that leather slip, I probably would have gotten shade on Instagram saying, okay, well, you're just copying so-and-so from from Idaho. Like, I didn't even know it existed when I drew it. And we're at that point where there's such a plethora of content that you almost can't be 100% original. Some aspect is going to be either willingly or without your will going to be a copy of somebody else. So we definitely have to... Oh, goodness. What was my, my quote in one of the other... Um, Oh, actually, episode nine, uh, the Teddy Roosevelt quote, the most important single ingredient in the formula of success is knowing how to get along with people. Um, Today in our world, perspective, empathy, and compassion. So we could just apply that to photography and change the light of content theft versus homage or, or honoring uh, somebody with the, the photos that we, we take. Let's put our perspective from, from their eyes. 
they're a Instagram channel with 700 followers. They're struggling with photography. They don't really know how to do things for themselves, but they see somebody that has success and they go, okay, I can learn something from this, this fantastic photo that MB wild took. So, and like I said, early on in this, um, in this podcast, someone could definitely argue and I'm incredibly surprised that they haven't, um, because we show up so many places uh, at the same time and comment threads and likes and follows, um, somebody could come into my DMs and be like, you know what, your entire page is just a ripoff of MB Wild. Like, your amber tones, your whiskey in the background, um, even though I've got a shelf of whiskey that probably puts anybody's whiskey collection to shame. Um, Certainly me. I'm, <laughs> I'm still copying, <laughs> um, copying somebody else. And I didn't... I didn't do it consciously, but again, shortly after taking three or four photos and I liked one of yours, I thought, you know what? Um, I'm kind of melding into MB's page a little bit. Uh, but it's it's definitely a, a homage. I've seen your photos. Your photos are absolutely fantastic. They add a calming note to me uh, when I see them. I get that kind of psyche-centering feeling. And I thought, you know, I'd really like to embody that in in my own work, not consciously trying to steal your style, um, but definitely taking some notes from a photographer that I would view as much more learned than, than myself and learning from those, those light cues, those, those lines um, and growing from that, both emotionally from looking at my, my photos that come from it and feeling that, that warmth of creativity and learning a new craft, um, but also by paying homage to, to a friend whose page does look uh, very similar. You said something just a little bit earlier, Chris, that I thought was very profound on this topic that I don't know that I've heard discussed in this way before about the difference between homage and stealing and I, I forget exactly how you said it, but, but what came through to me was, you know, is there is there maker energy going into this thing? And mm-hmm. I, I think it's when you're talking about, you know, the podcast criticism and going after anybody who had coffee or pirates. And what hits me about it is who is putting their energy in to try to make something and to put it out there in the world to be vulnerable? It reminds me of that other, I think it was Teddy Roosevelt quote about, about being the man in the arena. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you're the man in the arena, pay no attention to the people who won't get down in there in in in, in the dirt with you. Oh yeah, um, because you're having a unique experience. Right? That's it's the gist of it. And I, that's what always got me about that criticism is you know here's an account that you know is putting out content, but is in no way taking a risk in their own photography. Just sitting back, criticizing other people who are actually putting themselves at risk with the maker's energy. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the that that's the the woman in the arena that matters so much there, or the man in the arena. And you know, to me, I I openly teach people my methodologies. If you wanted to, I I sit down and show you how I edit something. And you know, the fact that there might be similarities between your work and mine. I mean, that I love that because to me, then I get to watch your work, and I get to see what you do that is better than me. And now I can study it. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm here to feed my curiosity. I'm mm-hmm. on a big game hunt for knowledge and for wisdom of others. And despite the fact that you and I can get on here and chat for a long time in my real life, I'm actually a much more quiet person. Yes. Um, in my regular work, I have a little, 
I get known as, and I have to work against it, is being a little bit intimidating. You know, I'm kind of an alpha type. Yeah. Um, and so for me, just the ability to learn with people and people who are taking a risk, that is so valuable to me. And I want to soak in as much as I can from others. When I was in photo school, I remember pulling out a ruler and going through all of Elliot Erwitt's photographs from Life magazine because he could tell a visual joke better than anybody. If you remember that original picture that has been recreated of the, of the very large person, I think it was a woman with high heels, but it may have been a man with an umbrella, um, but the very large person in this tiny little folding chair, and mm -hmm. there's a tiny little dog under it, like a chihuahua, yep. um, with this look like save me. That was Elliot Erwitt, and he could tell visual jokes better than any photographer I've ever studied. And I remember going through every single one of his photographs that I could get a hold of a photo book, later the internet, trying to understand, like, how did you do this, Elliot? And in no way was I stealing it so that I could pretend to be Elliot Erwitt yeah. and try to charge people to be Elliot Erwitt. I, I tried to learn it so that I could bring a maker's energy and stand on the shoulders of someone that I considered to be a bit of a giant. And maybe, maybe, maybe renew that work and bring it fresh into my time because his time of shooting is over. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what jumps out to me as you talk is, you know, I think even now when that debate comes up, I think what I want to do is to look at it and see who's bringing maker's energy to it. And if yes. two people who are bringing maker's energy to it and they're being low ego players, if they have a disagreement about whether it's homage or stealing, then I think that's a legitimate debate that they can have together that mm -hmm. I would honor and be on and, and take something away from listening to it. But if one person's a maker and one person is just a critiquer and is putting no risk, I, I don't know that I even think that that's a legitimate you know, point yeah. of criticism anymore. Yep. So anyway, I, I just I learned from you on that one. I think that's a brilliant test that for yep. me I'm, I'm going to put into action. There we go. Yeah, I can actually think of, um, as you were going back through, I was thinking of one photo, um, and I actually had a long conversation uh, with this gentleman. So we talked about the, the Peter McKinnon, um, the snow coin, which was, I think about a week ago. So that might've been the thing that you were uh, talking about. Cause I remember he posted that. And then shortly after, I believe he made a story post, like all oh, that took all of five minutes or, or something like that. Like somebody had copied him and he had seen it. Uh, they had tagged him in it and it ended up on his story. And I think that's where the controversy started. But, um, one of the people that, um, that was accused or attacked for, for copying him is actually a person that I have been talking back and forth with for probably five or six months because they love the photos that are on my page. And for those of you that, that do follow me on Instagram, um, a large number of my photos are taken with my iPhone. I have an iPhone 12 Pro Max. Um, I'm not always home. I'm not always in in arm's reach of my um, EOSR, my Canon EOSR. So a lot of times I take photos with, with my phone. And when this person found that out, he said, well, I have the same exact phone and I can't ever get photos that look anything like yours. So he has a number of photos on his page that look almost exactly like mine because he's taking photos of a knife that's sitting on a book in front of a, with a lighter in the, in the foreground, bokeh out. Um, with the portrait mode from the phone, you know, his, his picture is almost a direct um, copy-paste. Mm -hmm. 
but he used it to learn and his page has grown exponentially in followership his photos have grown exponentially over that time so like maybe one out of every 10 photos that he has will look exactly like one of mine the the composition the items are similar the layout of everything is simpler but he's using it as a as a way to learn what i did in that and then you'll see him apply it to the next five or ten photos that he takes and then he'll pick another one and he'll grow from that this person has a Peter McKinnon coin. He's a huge fan of Peter McKinnon. And he decided to do a different take of of this photo. And I thought it was genius. So what he did was he took a, a pot of water. And in the bottom of that pot of water, he put aquarium stones. So the pot of water was big enough that when he zoomed in, he cropped in his iPhone photo. You couldn't see the edges. You couldn't tell that it was a it was a pot of water. And what he did, he lives in a cold climate. So he put this pot of water outside as it's freezing cold, put the coin on the uh, aquarium stone in the bottom, and as that water froze from the outside, right as it's about starting ready to, or about getting ready to freeze over the center, so it's just crossing the lines of the coin from the perspective of his shot, he snapped a picture. So you have these these ice crystals closing on the face of the water, and it looks like it's sitting on, um, on like a rocky pebble beach bottom underneath the the water. I thought it was a brilliant take, as not a direct copy of Peter McKinnon's photo, but a a context copy. So he kind of took that same snowy pref, um, presence, the crystalline features, and made it his own. The first comment that he got, um, I have notifications turned on for him as well. So as soon as he posted it, I went right away and liked it, sent him a message. I said, that's a fantastic photo. Um, I saw where you were taking that from. Uh, I think you did a great play on it. Great execution. Um, these are a couple of tips that I would have done. And again, I'm not a professional, but to to this guy, I have above his um, above his knowledge base for photos. And then as soon as I got done sending him that message, I see this this person like, way to go ripping off somebody with way more followers than you, you know, trying to capitalize on somebody else's success. And I'm not typically an asshole uh, on social media. I try to portray the best of myself um, <laughs> and not be a complete jerk to to everybody around because in in real life, um, much like yourself. I would consider myself an, an alpha male. I'm successful in business. I'm a, I'm a big guy. I'm quiet. And people have a hard time reading me. I have a face that would <laughs> probably be the best um, explanation of it would be RBF, resting bitch face, because <laughs> my face looks like I'm ready to rip somebody apart all day long because it's just expressionless. I don't smile all that much um, in my day-to-day life or anything like that. Uh, But in this one occurrence where I saw this person that's just genuinely trying to grow as a photographer and is enjoying it so much, I get so many heartfelt messages from him just saying like, I I can't believe that somebody with 3,000 followers, which it's only 3,000 followers, but to him with 150 or 200 when he first started out, he was so amazed that somebody with my following, the amount of likes that I would get, would take 
I think I took like 45 minutes or an hour that first day that he messaged me to just give him as much information as I could to help out in any way. To take this super nice guy that's not meaning any ill will, and you can see it in his photo and his explanation, he even said something uh, along the lines of, I I saw Peter McKinnon's post, and this was the first thing that came to mind. Um, So he even said, I saw his post, this is taking um, uh, symbolism from it. And to have this jerk just ripping into him, just ticking away at his um his emotions you know like what happens if he never does that again and he doesn't grow as a photographer and his creative outlet stagnates and just dissipates because some jerk out there stifled his creativity what a crime yeah and that energy we're again talking about an obvious homage where you can see that it's not theft because he even honored the first person that that did it in the post and at the beginning of it as well. It wasn't like, oh, after the 30 hashtags, like photo credit, blah, blah, blah. Um, it was right in the first sentence, I think, of his of his post. Um, I missed all of that. Yeah. That's an interesting case study that you lay out. Oh, and it was uh, it was really big in the other Instagram group. The That Instagram group was, um, was flooded with, with information. And then... <laughs> A lot of other things ensued after that. A lot of people in the group were were fired up, and of course, they exponentially <laughs> um, not fed the system with fire, but definitely fed it with humor. Like I, I was laughing hysterically at everything that was going on because one person in the group, <laughs> and I'm still chuckling about this now that I think about it. Uh, one person from the group, you know, because it was such an asinine way to go about the the whole thing to to claim that he was stealing when he was honoring uh, Peter McKinnon and doing his own own take on it. Uh, one of the guys took one of Peter McKinnon's photos off of his Instagram, like screenshot it and posted it to his story. And it was Peter McKinnon holding his camera on the side of, um, I think it was Moraine Lake, uh, and he's taking a picture. So it's a picture of Peter McKinnon with his uh, Canon uh, 1D. Um, and in the comment, he goes, just decided I was going to take some photos today. I look pretty cool, don't I? Hashtag ha ha ha. Hashtag jokes on you. Hashtag, you know, whatever else. <laughs> just kind of being like, relax, people. It's it's a learning experience. It's a growth thing. Um, so I got a lot of, I got a lot of humor out of that. <laughs> Did you ever see the movie... Um... Inside Out by Pixar. No, no, that's the one with all the little little people inside that kind of control the emotions. Yeah, so it, it you know not for nothing here, but that that movie is very interesting because it's actually a movie about neuroscience, and then explain it like I'm five kind of sense that is masquerading as a kids movie, but is not. And and the story inside of Pixar that has been told about it is that it took like 10 11 years to come to life because they just kept getting it wrong and and pixar actually uses it as an example of how their internal creative process works Mm -hmm. and how they keep going until they get it right but but the concept is that you know they they took some of the insight about how a brain functions and, and most people have one of six emotions that is like their guiding set with their their number one way of interacting with the world and the others support it 
And some people are driven by, you know, joy or optimism. Some people are joy are driven around by fear, some by anger. And there's a character in there that I think people misunderstand a lot, and it's disgust. And, you know, they do a good job of showing the value of disgust. You know, she would come in when the baby was about to eat something that could poison it. Um, or when, you know, she was going to her first day of school and, and it was like, should I wear this or that? He right and discusses, starts hitting a button going, absolutely not. You should not wear that. You know, you have a social life here. But I think when we get into the artistic community, we have a lot more people that are driven by their sense of disgust because they have incredible taste. And it's just, it's something that aesthetic people tend to have. I've noticed it in you, actually. I mean, you you know, some people don't realize I would love one of these days to, to take over your podcast and interview you the whole time. Um, because honestly, you know, between your work ethic and the projects that you work on and the quality of the objects that you put out, um, you know, th I think that there's a craftsman in there. But when people are driven by disgust, if they haven't harnessed it yet, the way that it comes out is it comes out as criticism and a type of negativity and anxiety that comes out against everything. And what they notice in the world is what is wrong about it all the time. And when it gets out of control, it just kind of makes them assholes sometimes. Yes. But when they harness it right, I think it makes them incredible craftsmen. And I think a lot of the knife makers that you and I hold their products and we go, my God, how good is this? And many of the great photographers that have taught me, Myron Barnstone was certainly one. Um, they had to get that under control because they have this taste that moves around the world and notices what is wrong with everything. And mm -hmm. they channel it into learning to build what is amazing. And I think some of the controversy of are you stealing this, and I'm not talking about at the highest levels where you know people are really dealing with theft, and you know they deal with the cynical version of humans a lot, and I think we need to cut them some slack. But at the lower levels, I think we're dealing with people that are just driven by disgust and they see something and they're like, no, do it yourself. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a pissy juvenile version of themselves that if they tamed it, would it could help turn them into a craftsman and a true artist and say, huh, so that guy was doing an homage. What did he learn? What did I learn? What did I like better about, in this case, Pete's photo? What did I like better about his? How is this person improving? You know, how do I use that to perfect my own? And I think that they could get much, much better and more formidable at what they do much faster if they tamed it. So anyway, that's my theory, is that, yeah. is that we're just in a section of the world where people are driven by that side more than in other industries. Mm -hmm. And again, tying right back into that last quote, perspective, empathy, compassion. The most important ingredient is learning how to get along with people. Um, so, so many guys in the, in the EDC community go towards that. Like you were saying, the disgust, the, the anger, the I'm bigger than you, where they don't start conversations with people. They don't build growth with people. Um, even talking about, so getting aside from photography a little bit and getting into the, the maker space, um, like I said, I don't have a huge following with uh, 3,500 followers. Um, I'm actually pretty sure that my sister-in-law's dog has four times the <laughs> followers on Instagram that I do. And I'm not even in joking that I'm pretty sure her, her wiener dog has 10,000 plus followers. So 
<laughs> I'm, a, I'm a small account, but I have reached out to, to makers that are, are making knife drops of three and 500. I've reached out to makers that are producing 10,000 knives a year. And you can tell the earnest craftsmen that are wanting to build a product that people connect to and love from the people that are making a product that puts money in their pocket. And I'm not saying that the the craftsmen that want to make that connection aren't there to make money. That's the whole point of a business. But you can tell the difference immediately between those two sections of people. And we need to have more of those craftsmen that are willing to to put their eyes into um, terrible analogy, walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. So how many photographers could take one of my photos and directly replicate it and put in the comment, I, I saw this photo and it spoke to me and I wanted to make my own version of it. I would be that person that would reach out to them and say, fantastic. I could see the same emotion in your photo that I was trying to instill in mind. I'm so glad that I communicated that to you. And I'm so glad that you were able to grow and, and communicate that to somebody else. And then you have that jerk in the community who is like, I, I took this photo. It's my photo. Get your own photo. We're, we're never going to, um, Gosh, and we could even liken this to <laughs> this. This is the point in the in the podcast where my ADHD uh, really kicks in. Um, we had a very very long conversation a few months ago about um, chemicals in the brain, the the difference between dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin, and how the synapses in the brain process those and how that directly affects us with Instagram. And we can even say photography where so many people in this community are looking for that addict's hit of, of dopamine. So they, they made a photo, they think that they made it themselves. They get a whole bunch of likes, they get a bunch of follows and shares and they're getting that hit of dopamine. But the one moment that somebody else takes a photo that's similar their dopamine high disappears. And because they haven't built the tribe, because they haven't built that relationship with other people, so they go to that disgust instead of being empathetic and compassionate, their dopamine high disappears and they become angry and resentful and malicious. Whereas if they would just take that moment to change their perspective to that person that was paying homage they're going to get that that dose of serotonin that that not addict hit where you're going to fall in 5 minutes but that yeah. that chemical that's going to give you that lasting relationship that lasting feeling uh, again talking about that that gentleman that's grown in his photography over the months of me having a relationship i could have came off that dopamine high of of creating that photo and getting a bunch of likes and having someone reach out to me and then came off of that high the moment that he made a photo just like mine and had been angry and divisive and malicious, but I didn't. I got this shot of serotonin, 
by building a relationship with him, basically pulling him into my tribe where we can grow together instead of just going from one photo that I made to the next, which we've said that all through the podcast. You're here for the growth, for the tribe, for for the ideas. You're here for the serotonin. And we have a lot of people in this community that are here for the dopamine. That's a brilliant way to look at it, Chris. I, I agree completely. I mean, if you could see my head, it's just nodding. <laughs> yeah. And remember, you know, dopamine, you know, now we're into my primary work, and I won't, I won't go into this. I think, you know, we've got to wrap up soon. But, yeah. you know, dopamine is the chemical that our brain releases to give us pleasure from adapting to the world and by having our basic needs met. So we get dopamine, a shot of dopamine when we hunt something, right? When, mm-hmm. when we get something, when we see a mammoth track, we get hit of dopamine and we find another one, we get another hit of dopamine and then we kill the mammoth and we get a big rush of dopamine and we eat junk food or we take cocaine or we hear a ding on the social media and all of it is dopamine, mm-hmm. dopamine, dopamine. But your body dopamine attenuates and over time, just like a cocaine addict, it takes more and more to give you the same high. Yes. And I think people that are only in it for dopamine, now curiosity is dopamine. And so it's a good thing. And without it, we die. We, we don't get up to go hunt the mammoth and our tribe starves. Mm-hmm. But the real payoff that dopamine gives us is the ability to develop serotonin and oxytocin with our tribe, to, to bond with other humans in a real way as a result of our work. Yes. And I think any person that's here and is just getting that cocaine hit of pleasure from putting work out there and forgets to connect with people along the way that they're going to burn out. I think biology predicts it and biology wins every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the last point uh, that I wanted to, to go over, um, and I think that this will be a good way to, to wrap up, and we, we've mentioned this in passing. Um, you mentioned the the conquest of gear, uh, and and trying to keep up with the the cutting edge of of photography. So you know, buying the 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 best lights, buying the best camera, the best lenses, and expecting all of that to to increase your your photography skills or your following on Instagram. Like the more money that you pour into gear. Um, the more people are going to pay attention to you. And I think that that's a stigma that is both untrue and unnecessary, especially when, like I said, I'm gaining followers at a pretty decent pace, and the majority of my photos are are iPhone. Uh, So I just want to instill that notion um, as we close up talking about the power of the thing that you text on to build your Instagram to build your ability as a photographer so that if you decide that photography is, is something that you want to pursue in a more, um, more in-depth method, you can take all of the laws and the rules that you've learned about photography on your cell phone and then become a really exceptional photographer when you go over to the professional photography sphere. So what kind of points would you like to um, to maybe talk about with that uh, context and uh, what what pointers do you got? Uh, well, you know, great point to end with because 
you know, I'll try to speak directly to somebody who's at a liminal phase, like a transition point in their photography, and they're deciding, should, should I give it more time and energy and investment? And if I could speak to them and give them the advice that I wish somebody would have given me, I would say, first of all, become a photographer, not a technologist. If, the technolo if becoming a technologist gives you great pleasure and you want to follow it, oh, man, nothing wrong with that. Go. But only do that deliberately. Do not think that by, by getting immersed in all the, the pixels and the lens charts that you're somehow becoming a better photographer because you're not. It's a different art. You know, your photography, you can absolutely remember Tim Hetherington was having stuff posted on the front page of the New York Times from War Zones with an iPhone. And I don't mean like a recent iPhone. I think he died eight years ago, ten mm. years ago. So, I mean, this is early, early phones. Um, general rule of thumb is become a photographer first. And then when you start bumping into a pattern of limitations and how you do what you do, then be willing to solve it technologically. Mm -hmm. If you shoot in such a way that you're always noticing the noise in your images, then buy a better sensor. If you, um, if you love shooting at the edge of the available light like I do, I love shooting at the edge of great light in my documentary work. And if that's what you love doing and you're always noticing the limitations of your low-light photography, then you may need to buy a much better sensor or a newer camera that just deals with low light sensors a lot better and just doesn't add noise to everything. But if you are buying light kits and you're shooting and you're, you know, you got your Ranger kit and you're popping off your flash bulbs and you're using available light, you will never need something that shoots low light. That is not something that you require mm -hmm. and don't feel that pressure to do it. You know, become a great photographer and understand how to make incredible work. Realize that the stuff on the front page of the New York Times or the stuff that filled Life Magazine or National Geographic years ago is so technologically inferior to the equipment available today. And if that work still has power, then you can still make powerful work regardless of what technology you're using. And when you do that, when you, when you know that, and I don't mean know it in your head like, yeah, I heard that. When you know it like I feel it in my soul, I get it. Then you're a photographer. And then you can go out and add and upgrade the technology that helps you become more yourself. But you will never buy the technology that somehow buys you into yourself. It just won't happen. And it burns people out and it makes them quit. And it bothers me when somebody walks away from photography because I think it, the people who it was in their soul because it is a way of seeing and processing the world that I think is very, very powerful and can be incredibly cathartic. And when they walk away because it got too expensive or they just keeping and chasing all of that, the, the technology and it didn't work, I've, it's just a sad thing that happens. So that's the best counsel that I would give on that topic. And, and it's something I wish somebody had sat me down and looked me in the eyes and told me. <laughs> really long. Gosh, uh, don't we all? Um, I, I've always been that uh, that that gear guy, um, where I wanted to buy the most uh, most recent and best gear, and then, like I said, I find myself taking more photos with my iPhone uh, than my three thousand dollar camera setup that's literally sitting within arm's reach uh, of me right now. <laughs> <Not> so, <clears throat> 
fantastic uh, spot to close. So those of you that ha- have sat through uh, the the whole podcast, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time uh, to listen to us. Those of you that are out there doing your best um, to take photos with what you've got, there are all kinds of resources online uh, for you to look at. There is even a Skillshare class that shows you how to take the best photos with your iPhone I do not have any kind of sponsorship with uh, Skillshare, but if you go and look up at any of Peter McKinnon's recent videos, there is a two- or a three-month free um, link that is provided there on his website. If you are looking to improve your photography, I would recommend that you look to people that you enjoy in the community, look at the way that they take photos, and even if they're taking it on a three, four, five thousand $5,000 camera, look at the context and then try to learn and build from that. Take a Skillshare class, take a YouTube class, better yourself no matter what equipment that you have. Uh, MB, thank you very much uh, for joining in, and you can uh, stick around after uh, the podcast. Um, I'm going to play the outro, and I will talk to everybody in the next one.